Wow, we're up early today, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Up at the same time, just on this instead of at work. Yeah, that's actually true. So um, for anybody that doesn't know Father James Maudsley, uh, I have been so excited to get him on our channel. Um, I I saw his... um, his speech at the Catholic identity conference. That was my first, first time I saw you. Cause I always um, subscribe to the Catholic identity conference and watch the, watch the talks after they actually air. And your, your speech was like flooring. Like it got a round of a standing ovation, round of applause. So um, I had reached out a couple of weeks ago and, and we started figuring out if we could schedule this together. And then you wound up checking our channel out a little bit. Now I, I I've been I've been devouring your content on your channel. Your your content on your channel is phenomenal. And then I and then you sent me the intro and outro of your book. So the intro and the last chapter of your book, which I read, and I enjoyed it so much, I bought the actual book. So we were originally going to talk about um, something from the Old Testament, but I have a feeling we're just going to wind up going in and discussing the, the liturgy this whole episode because I cannot believe how rich the liturgy is with Old Testament symbolism in the actual liturgy. Mm-hmm. So w- real quick, before any of that, did you grow up going to a Novus Ordo? Yeah. Uh, brought up Catholic, only knew the Novus Ordo, 1970s, Liverpool Archdiocese in England, which was very liberal. Um, but then fell away from it as teenagers. And it was a, a massive rediscovery to rediscover the mass and the meaning of the real presence. And then a few years later to discover the traditional mass and have that feeling that so many people have had that you're home. In fact, that you were kidnapped when you were little and didn't know it. You've grown hmm. up in a strange land and finally you discover your home, which makes sense of all our culture, by the way. The best of culture that we're surrounded with in art or philosophy or music or architecture, it it derives from the Holy Eucharist, which is the full substance of everything, of God. And that gives everyone for hundreds of years the inspiration they need to surround us with beauty and truth. Um, and that we cling on to parts of that culture without knowing where it's come from. Mm. But it all comes together in the Mass. Yeah, and- I remember feeling like... <clears throat> so. My my original conversion, I would say, I had, I mean, we all had such a similar story. We grew up Catholic, leave the faith for a period, and then something draws us back in. And then you read about the saints and their devotion to the mass, and you're like, there's like a disconnect. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't understand how the saints could have a devotion to the mass when I'm barely staying awake. And it mm. feels a little cult-like when everybody's holding hands together and repeating these things <laughs> together like that. Like, there is something strange about the Novus Ordo. And then when you discover the traditional mass, it's like, oh, this is the Catholicism that I've, that I've been, you know, learning about through Scott Hahn and all the, and the saints and all these. This is, this is where the liturgy matches the faith. And it's it's a very strange feeling. It's feeling like you were robbed of your birthright. The two aspects of the mass which strike true when you find the traditional mass. I'd read before that that the mass is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, and I just couldn't match that with what was happening every Sunday in our church. I thought, how is that the sacrifice of Christ? Um, mm-hmm. You, but the gravitas of the old mass is fitting, and also the number of mentions in the old mass of our sinfulness. Just thinking the offertory prayers about our innumerable sins or that the priest says um, and neglecting God. 
that's what struck me and said, this is the mass that I need. Yeah. Because we know you're a sinner. And if you have a, a service that is not acknowledging that and it's not offering a solution to that, what are you going for? But when the yeah. mass keeps hammering home with the confiteor and asking for mercy and acknowledging your sins and everything is by the power of God and his gift and the intercession of the saints, it's like it relieves you because you're like, heaven is doing this for us. Heaven is changing our soul. We have to work at it as well. But you know that when you just try to beat sin, it's not going to happen. We need heaven's help. <clears throat> that also convinced me that this traditional mass, it, it's speaking to the deepest needs in our soul. So I, <clears throat> I had mentioned we had, um, we had Taylor Marshall on recently and <clears throat> I had I had mentioned how like I used to be a, a two forms of the liturgy guy like like under Benedict where he thought like the two forms could enri enrich one another. Mm -hmm. But when I was looking at how ancient cultures were formed, I realized there's never been an ancient culture that didn't have religion as its centerpiece. And this the whole idea of an atheist culture, a culture that doesn't believe in God, is, is only possible because Christianity had subdued the earth so much. And that when they change the liturgy, you actually cut the legs of the, of the ritual that formed Western culture. And it does play such a big part in why the culture is falling apart the way it is. Mm -hmm. So um, what actually led you to tradition was there like actually you know what why don't you to, before we even get into the book because i definitely want to talk about the book uh rob had mentioned um rob what, what were you saying when he was in his younger life just uh just when i was reading up about your your history um i saw that you were a, a political prisoner in burma before you entered seminary is that right yeah um because when we fall away from the faith said church at the Novus Ordo Church, which isn't presenting the fullness of truth. Mm -hmm. um, we can still have a desire for truth, right? There's a lot of people, non-Christians, who are searching for truth. Yeah. And all paths lead to Jesus Christ, all of them. Where I was then in my 20s was hearing about um, just unbelievable injustices around the world, thinking, how can this happen? I want to look into this, get to the bottom of it. Because we're all, the beginning of finding God, I think, is seeing our neighbor, our brother. If you see the crucifixion, you see how Christ suffered, you have to be interested in, well, who was that? Why did he suffer? And you find out, and you find out that it's your sins are the reason for him dying for us, to save us. And that has to call a response from you. And you find out he's God. And it's amazing. But before then... A healthy soul is interested in the suffering of others because you have your own problems, which can weigh you down. And you realize, boy, oh, boy, there's people who've got it a million times worse than me. What am I complaining about? And it, that will lead to Christ. So this was what happened with Burma. And you're kind of drawn into trying to work against injustice. But that beginning will bring you to, to Christ who conquered injustice. So I got the Bible in prison and I was amazed by it, but I just read it on a level of history and seeing God's concern for the poor, God's concern for the oppressed. It's immense and it's total. It's beautiful. And that blew me away. It, you know, the Old Testament, how God works to rescue 
people. And all the, the mess that people get into, it's not because God's inactive, it's because he's given us free will and the devil <laughs> wants to trip us up. But in the years later, I mean, I've been reading the Bible since 25 years since I got it in prison. You just discover there's more and more layers that you never dreamt of. Um, and that's, I guess, leads, led me to the liturgy, which I didn't appreciate at all. By now. One thing that, that you pointed out in your book, because I've read through the Old Testament, right? Like I've, I've gone through these Old Testament stories. There's nothing that I love more than seeing the Old Testament fulfilled in the New there's something you point out in your book that blew me away that I never even picked up on. The amount of lambs that were slaughtered yeah. as a prefigurement to the Lamb of God being, uh, you know, uh, giving his blood as a sacrifice for us. Like, you're talking hundreds of thousands of lambs slaughtered. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm like, I've read these stories before. Why did that never even dawn on me when Solomon builds his temple? Right. So rivers of blood that were, and the whole of Jerusalem would have smelt of it. This was when the temple was inaugurated under Solomon. Um, and it's all a, a figure of the most precious blood of Christ, which fills the whole universe. And you go back and, of course, Moses uh, instituted the feast with the Paschal lamb, and every family would have their lamb. So you've still got all these lambs being killed early with Moses. And then you go back earlier still with Abraham's ram instead of Isaac, and then back to Abel's lamb. And so it's like this theme that's gone right back to the beginning. God was laying it down. I hope we can get into this, how everything in the Garden of Eden is about Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion and the mass, in fact, and heaven. It's kind of a, got all the essential elements. God was preparing everything from the beginning, which makes sense because when we say mass is our way of salvation, the continuing work of Jesus on the, on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, this is such a big deal. It didn't like occur to God a few years before it happened. He knew it from eternity and started preparing from it. In fact, if, maybe we'll get into this. It's not the Holy Trinity is not just in the big structure of the Old Testament with the, the law, the prophets and the Psalms. It's in the first three verses of Genesis. It's in the first three words of Genesis and it's in the first three letters of Genesis. It's about the Trinity. And you also, you and I, when we spoke, so the first conversation Father Maudsley and I had was uh, trying to figure out what we wanted to do with the episode. And he asked me, he said, well, who are the three major patriarchs in the Old Testament? And I said, it was Abraham, Moses, and David. And you said, even they prefigure the Holy Trinity. Yeah. So they're any, by anyone's standard, the major figures of the Old Testament are those three. And Abraham's name means father of all nations. Um He's and the New Testament tells us he's. Ooh. Oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry, but um, I must have clicked something. Um, and he was willing to sacrifice his son, so he shows us God the Father. And then Moses is the leader who leads his people through death through the Red Sea. This is like Jesus, who was the first to rise from the death so that everybody else could. Um, and I mean, just the story of Moses. Birth, you know, the king wanted to kill all the Hebrew boys like Herod did against Jesus. And then um, there's millions of parallels. Then David, he wrote the Psalms, which are the most read works in the world. You've got hundreds of thousands of priests and religious reading whole 150 Psalms every week. Or I think with the Novus, they change that for every month. But the, these Psalms speak to people now. And um, it's amazing 3,000 years after they were written. 
And he did that by the spirit. The scriptures tell us it was by the spirit that he did it. So you have Abraham, Moses, and David showing us the father, the son, and the spirit. As well as that, they all show us Jesus Christ. Everybody does, basically, who is open to God. So they're all shepherds who rescued their family or their kin and went through suffering to do that. Um, but to tie it in with the Mass, you know, in the canon of the Mass, we have this prayer, the Supercray, which t talks about God being pleased to look on our offering as he did that of Abraham, Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. What did Abel offer? A, a lamb. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abraham offered his son, and Melchizedek offered bread and wine. They're all the same thing for Holy Mass. The Lamb of God, who is the Son of God, and that bread and wine is God. Yeah. And they also stand for the Father, Son, and Spirit. Abel is the son who was killed by his elder brother, the innocent shepherd, the just shepherd. Um, then Abraham, we've said, is like the father. And Melchizedek is also the spirit without beginning or end, without genealogy, um, without mother or father. I mean, he had a mother and father, but the scripture doesn't tell us who. So it's like he's without that. Um, when, when, when you, okay, so like we've been, we've been having these arguments with Protestants and, you know, online lately. And it's like, when, they don't grasp the old Testament pre, you know, prefiguring uh -huh. the new that when, <clears throat> when Moses is born, a call goes out to kill all the Hebrew born, uh, newborn children that Moses escapes to Egypt. When Jesus is born, Herod puts out a call to kill all the newborn infants. Jesus escapes to Egypt. Moses fasts in the desert for 40 days. Jesus fasts in the desert before all these things. So Jesus is the new Moses. I had never even realized like some of the things that you're pointing out, like anytime I see how God was working from the beginning, Beginning of the story and mm -hmm. it's like my heart lights up it's like these these little hidden gems these these depth charges that go off in the old testament where you see god was at work the whole time yeah well if if i may because it, it blows me away constantly i'm finding out more and more all the time so that adam was taken from the slime of the earth the dust of the earth right um and you have the whole theory of evolution which is crap which is trying to distract us from the fact that Adam came from the earth. And we're told that not just by Genesis 2, it's in Genesis 3 as well. It's in the Psalms, it's in Isaiah, it's in Tobit, it's in Sirach. It tells us again and again he came from the dirt. What else does, right, is ultimately the bread and wine come from the dirt that makes the wheat and the grape from which we get the bread and the wine, which then in the mass is transubstantiated into the very substance of God. So in the mass, you have these sacred species, which appear to be bread and wine, but underneath are really God. The whole of creation has an appearance, which is supposed to be signing us and signaling us about God behind it all, upholding it all. So that Adam who came from the dirt, if he's then opened to grace, or I mean now man, Catholics, or when we receive the blessed sacrament, our itinerary has gone from being in the dirt to becoming like God. Mm -hmm. We're lifted up from this dank, fetid place that's crawling with worms and grubs, which is a sign of life on earth, and we're lifted up to heaven. Now, what does this job normally in nature is a tree. And Genesis 1 is full of trees. It's telling you again and again about the trees because it's the cross that lifts us up from sinners to saints. 
which we see in a picture where dirt becomes a sweet fruit. And incidentally, the fruit is consists of flesh and blood in that you talk about the flesh of an orange or the flesh of a fruit and the blood of the grape if you squash it. So you even have this flesh and blood in a fruit. So from the beginning, just that you have the trees pulling up the dirt to make fruit is a sign of the cross pulling up sinners to make saints. Um, and then every time you have a tree in the Old Testament or wood, St. Gregory of Nyssa says, think of the cross. And it's, it's almost every page, one way or another. Yeah, it, it's what. All right. So now, when you first feel called to the priesthood, do you originally start going the Novus Order route, or did you f- immediately go towards uh, the the the, uh, the fraternity? No, when I was called, I didn't know about the traditional mass. I'd never been. It was um, 2005. I felt the call, um, but I couldn't join straight away. I, be- I had an annulment process, which took four years. And in that four years, thanks be to God, I discovered the traditional mass. So by the time the annulment came, I had already burnt out with the novice because the seminary who provisionally would take me on um, after 40 months in a pre-seminary house formation, they said that they wouldn't teach us the old mass and I couldn't kneel to receive Holy Communion. And I thought, well, no way, I'm not going there. And I, I looked around a bit more and began to learn about Latin and the church fathers and then a bit more about tradition um, and eventually started attending it and realized, well, this I can't not know this if I'm going to become a priest. And so, so what seems at the time like the most biggest disaster of your life, right? An annulment, horrible. But God used that time so I could find tradition Um and so I look back and you think, well, he's ordered everything perfectly. Not going to argue now if I have a cross in my life because you don't know what God is working with it, but he's, he's doing it for the greater good. It's like um, what, we've been, what I've been trying to show people is that like, because a lot of people feel hopeless right now. And I'm like, you guys don't realize we're caught up in the midst of the story still. Like this is a, this yeah. is a story, a universal story and we are in it and God shows us to be alive during this time. D- don't think he doesn't know what's going on. Like I know you think the church is a mess and everything's going to fall apart. It's like God knows exactly what's happening. He had this all planned out just like he had the crucifixion and all these things that you're talking about planned from all eternity. What we're going through right now was also planned from all eternity. Yeah. So Noah, for example, if um, like the book we've been talking about, if I can just plug them, is uh, Crucifixion to Creation. Um, but an earlier one, Adam's Deep Sleep, tells us that when Noah fell into his drunken sleep, remember his son saw him there naked. Um, that's a prefiguration of the crucifixion. It's from the, the fruit of the vine, the work of Noah's hands that he ended up getting drunk, which is a sign of Jesus' suffering, and lying there naked. Um, And upon it hung the judgment of his sons, depending how they reacted. If they laughed, they're cursed. If they reverently walked backwards to cover him up, they were blessed. But I think that Noah, he had no idea that his drunken stupor was prefiguring the crucifixion. Yeah, of course. So people get in a mess now in their life and don't realize it's all part of the same pattern, the universal story. Was Samson, when he had his eyes gorged out and was tortured and mocked and abused, and then in the enemy temple with his arms stretched out and brought it down, 
it was such a miserable end for him. He was betrayed by one that he loved in the way Jesus was betrayed by Judas, you know, and w with a kiss, as it were. And and Samson knew that Delilah was going to betray him. He knew it, and yet he still told her his secret because he was so worn out, I think, with this, not just her nagging, but the, the misery of thinking the one that I love is going to betray me. And he didn't, after that, he didn't want to live. And he thought, what the heck, I'll just fall into their hands. Now, in all that, he didn't realize he is portraying elements of the crucifixion. But he, he held the faith as in he destroyed evil of his day, bringing down the temple and killing more of his enemies in his last day than he did in his whole life. So we in our suffering should be sure that God is working through us the cross and that we need to not lose hope. But how will we bear the pain? How can we tolerate suffering? is to think of the suffering of Jesus and Mary, which is infinitely more than our own, and they didn't deserve it. We generally deserve a lot of it. <clears throat> we have to grow up and stop saying, oh, I don't deserve my suffering. Well, if, if you don't, if there are people who suffer more than they deserve, which is true, your suffering is for the redemption of others. Why would you begrudge that? Because we've only got one shot at life now. And the measuring of suffering that God allows you to go through is actually a gift. He's letting you hang on the cross. Yeah. And there's nothing yeah. more fruitful for, for yeah. other people as well as yourself. You mentioned throughout, throughout the even the short selection of the book that you, you provided to us. Um, over and over, you talked how, how self-sacrificial love is divine love and how that's, that's how we yeah. become like God is, is self-sacrifice. I think that's the pattern of reality, which again is why it's so important that the Trinity, we see it in the Old Testament and in the Mass, that the traditional Mass has at least 40 references to the Trinity. And you wonder why does it keep saying uh, to the Father, through the Son, with the Holy Spirit, who lives and reigns forever and ever, amen. We have to keep saying it to realize that this underpins everything. The Father pours himself out so that the Son, he communicates the divine nature to the Son. The Father holds nothing back. If the father held something back, then the son wouldn't be his equal and he wouldn't be God, which is Arianism. It's a collapse of the Trinity in reality. So the father is self-sacrificial. The son doesn't determine himself, but receives everything from the father, asks nothing more and rejects nothing of it. So he's self-sacrificial in that he's not self-willed, but he um, shares the will with the father. And then the spirit is similarly not self-determining but takes everything from father and son um so this spirit of self-sacrifice is how anything comes to be or is i mean not i'm not saying god came to be but that's the the, <clears throat> pattern, the stable yeah, pattern. The, if you try like, to grasp sorry go on no, no 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 go ahead i'm sorry i thought you would finish your thought if we grasp things well it's no longer grace right so it won't work it won't save it won't last for eternity eternity is this interest in the other you um behold the other person and you love them eternity is not self-regarding god is not self-regarding so when we try on earth to be self-regarding selfish turned in on ourselves even as a church as well not just as individuals or a family it's over you need to be outward looking as well it's like <clears throat> When Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, um, even when Jesus is silent before the Sanhedrin, like that is God speaking. 
like like his silence is 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 god speaking it's showing like there are times where you just have to lay down your life and allow yourself to be brutally you know yeah just treated mistreated which is why the traditional mass is so full of silence because it is the universal word every other word you could possibly speak has a form it's meaning it's determined it means this and not that so you're saying a particular thing the only way you can say everything is in silence so that whoever's in the church during mass they all have different prayers to offer they're going through different experiences different loved ones that they want to pray for um if you are determining the prayers by having everyone say the same thing out loud or listen to some bidding prayers that someone's just written that morning there's no way that everyone can truly express to god what what they need to and want to so that's why you need silence to allow that mm-hmm. silence is completely undetermined and in that way it's um like god in being completely open to every reality um we yeah we yeah. need silence yeah it's like when it's it's so strange when you hear people talk about how the the like the new mass is full participation it's like don't <laughs> don't people understand that like my some of my favorite masses are low masses when they're silent and it's and i get to do some real self-reflection and, and look over okay god what reveal my heart to me show me show me where i've fallen short show it's like those those moments are where god actually will reveal your own heart and your own sinfulness to you but when there's so much noise going on you never have that time for introspection yeah and if, if i made the um Sushape Sancta Trinitas at the end of the offertory, it seems to have like asking four different things. And that they're all actually the same thing. It says, first of all, we are honoring the remembrance of Christ's passion, resurrection, and ascension. Secondly, it's to honor the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints, including those whose relics are in the altar and all the saints. Thirdly, it's asking for our salvation. And fourthly, it's asking that the saints who we remember and honor will intercede for us. But you realize they're actually all the same pattern built on Christ's passion. So first is the remembrance of his passion, but that is the honor of all the saints because they all live for it. That's how it honors them. They all had that as the highest thing in their life. And that is our salvation to remember and honor the saints because of that, and which is what we do at Mass. That's why we're at Mass as well, to do as they did, which was to honor God for his son's death. And then the last one, that they would intercede for us in heaven. What do we think the saints are doing in heaven when we're remembering and honoring them? They love to see us keeping the Mass going to the end of time, because they all did that. And if we quit it and let drop the ball so that the old Mass disappears... All the saints in heaven will be thinking, oh, you idiot generation. You know, <laughs> we kept that going from Adam and Eve through to Christ and from Christ through to the 21st century. And now look at you lot. You've dropped the ball. So we were wrong. The saints, this is impossible. But they were saying we were wrong to put our hope in the passion in the cross because it has been defeated by the enemies of the church. That's why I'm totally 100% convinced we're not going to drop the ball. We can't. Any person might decide to stop going or they might think the mass is being so beaten up on the old mass. I can't handle it anymore. 
then like you said anthony we're part of we've been born to this time for this reason to uphold the cross when the attacks on it are coming from within in the church from rome yeah it's, it's glorious and we can't lose because the saints can't lose Jesus. I, think every, I think where everybody is uh, is is so um baffled right now is that i think everybody had this idea that we we were going to endure persecution but that we would have uh you know the pope would be you know it would be from the outside i think everybody was like you know the church is going to stand strong and we would we would endure these attacks from the outside and we might nobody expected the attacks to come from within but even that is baked into the story the story the, the story of judas is so central the betrayal yeah. by the friend right and you were even saying even even um uh Samson. Uh, Samson was also betrayed by a friend. You look at Joseph and his brothers betray him. Look, we're going to be who killed Abel? His brother, Cain, yeah. right? It's his yeah. own brother who does it. Yeah. And it's and Judas is Jesus's brother also. It's like it, it's there's it's all baked into the story. So I just think that people were thrown for a loop with this whole thing. And I'm starting to see like, no, we're entering the passion right now and if people really lose focus they're going to miss out on the glorious resurrection yeah so which is why we have the bible telling us what happened from the beginning it's trying to give us this immutable pattern which i write about in the book so that we're not surprised when we find ourselves in that pattern because it is disorientating right and which is why the apostles fled from gethsemane they were completely disoriented, even though Jesus has been telling them again and again and again, the Son of Man is going to be taken and suffer and mocked and killed. He told them, and they, it's, the Gospels tell us they didn't understand his words until after the resurrection when he explained it to them again, and they're like, aha. So that's a picture of the Old Testament, which nobody understood until the Blessed Virgin Mary and she believed on Calvary. She knew what was going to happen, that her son would be the Lamb of God that was taken and slaughtered and that he would rise from the dead, which is in the, throughout the Old Testament as well. She understood that. And then the church has ever since, by following Mary, by, follow, by taking her as her mother, we believe it too. And so we shouldn't be shaken in our life when, okay, we get shaken, but hopefully we're more quick to say, okay, God, I trust you. And, and not just, I trust you. It's like, guys, look, we're in, we're in it. Like this is, this is, we're in it. It's like, mm-hmm. it's easy to, it's easy to lose focus, but that, that's <clears throat> really why I've fallen so in love with typology, because it really is, like you said, how reality unfolds to us. You're seeing these patterns over and over throughout the Christian story. And we're in the midst of a very significant pattern right now. And, uh, Rob, I wanted to make sure you actually talked about um, the Ad Orientum. Yeah, I was just going to – you a, a minute ago just mentioned uh, being disoriented. And mm-hmm. you you had a, a section in here um, that made that made me come to a realization about that word. You know, you, were, you talk about how um, Ad Orientum worship, you know, facing the East, uh, Orient, um, how the Holy Scripture calls Jesus the Orient. Yeah. So that uh, that when we face away from Jesus uh, in in worship or or at any point in our life, um, in you know versus populum worship or whatever, um, that we're dis 
orientated. Like yeah. we're, we're facing away from the Orient. We're literally facing away from Jesus in a sense. Yeah, and we're facing away from the face of God, which if you think um, when two people love each other, they like they like to look at each other's face, right? They, it gives them pleasure to see the other's face. And the scriptures tell us that when God turns away his face, we disintegrate and die. We need to be, we need God to behold us, to regard us, and we need to behold him. Where do we see the face of God? It's, again, it's in the Holy Eucharist. That is the face of God, but you have to see it with the eyes of faith and not with the eyes of our body, where he's giving himself completely for us, dwelling amongst us in the tabernacle, which, of course, was the whole point of what Moses built in the desert with all the people. Mm. And then the temple is just an upscale tabernacle. So, and that comes through again in the book that the temple of Jerusalem shows us the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, as does Christ incarnate, as does Holy Mass. Because what is the temple? It's the place where God encounters man, where he comes to dwell with man, the Shekinah. That's the divinity living there. And Moses would come to the tent of meeting to speak with God. So that's where we go and adore and, and pray and encounter God. Then the body of Christ is shown first, like in the temple, say, you know, the temple was built out of wood, stone, and gold. So the, it's like the wood of the cross, the stone, which is the rock, which is Christ, or the altars of the churches, and the gold, which is the virtues and glory of him inside, his internal virtues. And then the soul is in the life of the temple. What happened in the temple? You had the Levites sing the Psalms all the time. You had the daily sacrifices. You had the Sanhedrin gathered there to make judgments. So in the soul of Jesus, you have this constant praise of God, sacrifice going up, and the judgments of God, the decisions of God, which we see ever since in the in the church. Um, but it's this place where God meets man. And where, where is that? That is in the incarnation where the divinity and humanity come together for the first time in a fullness in the Virgin Mary, who's the true tabernacle. And loads of this I got from the, the rabbi. see in Luke, the Shekinah descends over Mary. Yeah. So everything that's happening in the temple and the tabernacle before that is building up to this momentous incarnation. Um. You, you, well, you even said, um, so the Levites were singing the Psalms. And one thing that you, you pointed out in your book, that when the priest puts his alb on, he actually says a psalm. So that even when a priest puts his vestments on there, it's so intentional that you're saying a psalm with each vestment that a priest puts on. Or there's a vesting prayer, yes, which might resonate with the psalms more, more or less. But um, And this, again, is the preparation before the Mass begins that tells you everything that's going to come, which I think is like the Garden of Eden which is telling us everything that's going to come so that the prayers at the foot of the altar, each chapter of this begins with an excerpt from the prayers at the foot of the altar or the vesting prayers in the sacristy. And it contains the whole truth of the mass, which is about to come. And the last gospel recapitulates it all. So in the beginning, we say, send forth thy light and thy truth. Um, and then in the last gospel, St. John's writing about the lux vera, the true light that came into the world. It's been done. It's been achieved. So in heaven, we will remember and know 
I say all of history, but we'll only know the good bits, the love, because nothing else matters and nothing else endures. Everything else will pass away. Uh, what is heaven? You know, people ask, will their pets get to heaven? <laughs> like, no, the, the, the point of an eagle is to show us St. John, an ox is to show us St. Luke, a lion is to show us St. Mark, a viper is to show us the hypocritical Pharisees who went to hell, a fox is to show us Herod who goes to hell. So you won't need these animals in heaven. You won't need mountains in heaven because we have the apostles who are like the mountains round about Jerusalem. You won't need a sun or a moon in heaven because we have Jesus and Mary. You won't need the stars because we've got the saints. You won't need a lake or a sea or an ocean because we have Mary, who is the ocean of grace. All the things in creation are meant to be showing us truths about God, which different saints then pick up in their life. We all have our individual calling, which is all to show an aspect of God that you can probably find in creation. Like all of us are probably some kind of animal. You can work out yourself which. If, if you're if you guys are listening to this and your hearts aren't lit up right now, like I don't know what planet you guys are on. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> as I'm what, listening to you, I'm really survives, like, I'm like, this is amazing. What survives in heaven is not the history like we read in history books, full of confusion and betrayal, but all the self sacrifice of people who have overcome that, who on a small scale love their neighbor, and nobody wrote it in the history books. Yeah, who looked after the prisoner and nobody wrote it in history books. But they did it with love for their brother because they love God. And that will be their identity in heaven. All the acts of love you ever commit in your life, none of them will be lost. And that is your identity. It's the name that God will give you, reveal you, that's written down on, on the stone that nobody knows and you don't even know until you die. And then you'll find out what your life was. So your DNA contains how many... Particles, is it 8 billion or something, um, bits of information? Like, well, that's the story of your life. It's not your DNA, but the, the acts of love which God prepared for you from the beginning to fulfill. Yeah. And, and in heaven, we'll see all that at once in an instant, in an instant. Because you won't be, your conversations with people, it's not going to be a drawn out conversation getting to know each other. It's because you see immediately their soul in God. Yeah. Um, and the whole story is this immutable pattern of self-sacrifice with Jesus perfected on Calvary. Um, and that's why we go to mass to get schooled in that, to learn that. In your book, you, you talk about how eternity is the, um, is basically, it, it's not the past and the past and the present and the present and the future and the future. It's, it's everything happening all at once and that it's the same plan these same events you know of salvation that they, they all look alike and and all uh prefigure each other because in eternity they are all happening at at the same time yeah so when saint thomas says so when god made the angels each angel is probably a different species um it's a a rational being but without a body so to differentiate them, they, they have to be a different species, which is a different amount, basically, of love and knowledge of God. That's what differs between the angels. With human beings, we're all the same species, but because we all have a body, we, we live in time and space, and we have different experiences in life. We all have a unique calling because nobody has the same brothers and sisters as you. Nobody. <clears throat> Some people might have the same mother and father as you, like a few of them, 
but only you have your brothers and sisters because even your brothers and sisters don't have themselves right as a brother and sister and you do so we're born with a particular network of people at a particular time and place where we have to show the glory and triumph of self-sacrifice of the cross in in our circumstances and that way god can show that through every culture in every time he is able to elevate man from the dirt into the fruit and all the time the devil is trying to heap dung on us actually it's just fertilizer all the troubles of life they're just going to make the plant grow more sweet yeah people i mean look when you when you talk about the saints what are the saints the saints are people who have a particular characteristic or aspect of the life of Christ, right? Like they, they show something about Christ in them. So none of the saints are the same. None of them are actually Christ, but they show a very particular aspect or characteristic of Christ that we say, oh, oh we can see the Lord in this person. Like mm -hmm. you can see Jesus in this person, not fully Jesus, but you see an aspect of Jesus in that person. So every one of us, when we get to heaven, it's like, you're not going to be the same as any of the other saints. You're going to have a particular aspect of Jesus that you were meant to glorify him through that aspect yeah and maybe you know all the dna that we have derives from adam and eve so all your holiness derives from jesus and mary jesus is the head and the source and the origin so the different like no human being has ever even a clone human being i think has got some tiny variation in the dna from well there's, there are no clones by nature there's only identical twins but they have slightly different dna mm-hmm um, so there's all these aspects of the fullness of Jesus' holiness, which is going to take billions of people to show that for. Yeah. And that, and like we're born into this time, so we know that he conquers. We Rob, don't have Rob had, Rob had pointed out in the green room before you popped in that um, when when he he said, you know, I thought this was going to be like a um, like a like a, what were you saying? intellectual like uh, you know apology for the TLM or like an intellectual argument for the TLM. And instead, you know, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that it, it, it's really meditation uh, on yeah. not just the mass, but on how, on how the traditional mass, like you said, ex exhibits, you know, the self-sacrifice built into the universe. Yeah. Cause we, when we start going to the traditional mass, at some point you find out this debate about the 62 books or the pre 55 and you're trying to work out how old it is. And then you have, quote, Bremen in 1570. So it's asked the Tridentine Mass. But we, we find out also it's called the Gregorian Mass because of Pope St. Gregory. And incidentally, the Gregorian chant is what drew me into the Old Testament. With the, It goes back to the Levites in Solomon's Temple mm -hmm. where they sang the Psalms, inspired by the Spirit, the Scripture tells us, and David, is how Jesus and the apostles would have sung them, which is how the early church did it. But in, in any case, we think, okay, so it's the Mass... 1600 years old or 50 to going to Pope Gregory. No, it's it's old. It goes back to the Last Supper, the day before the crucifixion. But if God told us in advance what was coming, in fact, He told us in the temple, the tabernacle, Abraham, Garden of Eden, it, the Mass is eternal, the, the, the thing of eternity that is expressed in creation cannot be taken out of creation, or creation wouldn't exist, it wouldn't be true anymore. So the, these, like when I've been, um, because of the COVID crap, yeah. I was taken out of ministry. And so I have to try to enter the mass in a different way. And that's when the, 
certain of these thoughts start developing about eternity. That I'm, when I go to the altar and I'm alone there, I'm actually going up to communicate with Abel and his, off, his offering of his lamb and then of his own life. I can't get closer to Abel than in Holy Mass until, please God, if I can get to heaven. I hope, you know, but that's until then, the closest you'll get to him is in Mass. But imagine that. Mass is bringing you together with Adam and Abel and Noah and Abraham and all the saints. It's incredible. It's so crazy that you're like you're seeing through this suffering that you had to endure your heart was lit up and you started to really meditate on these things. I couldn't figure out why your book was called crucifixion to creation. I thought, I'm like, why didn't he write creation to crucifixion until you just explained that. And and now I'm understanding what you mean. It's like, no, 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 like the, no, no crucifixion. And you're, and you're, you have to realize this is baked into the, into mm-hmm. the, the very essence of our being from the creation of the foundation yeah. of the world. Crucifixion is the beginning it's the source, and it radiates through time, past and future, so that, again, Abraham, Abel, and Melchizedek, with their sacrifices of the sun, the lamb, and the bread and wine, they believed in Christ. The church fathers tell us they believed in Christ. They didn't have a picture of Jesus Christ in their head, but they believed in the promises of God, the promised Messiah, the coming one, the anointed. And they were fully aware in their sacrifices that they were trying to please the one true God. And in this sense, they understand the mass because that's what we're trying to do. How many of us go to mass and don't realize that it is, first of all, sadly, a lot don't realize that it is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. But they're still doing their best and they're praying in a way that's pleasing to God. They just don't have the catechism. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us that have got the catechism, we still go to mass and we have no idea what we're walking into. We're walking to, to heaven with all this fullness. So why should Abraham, Abel, and Melchizedek have a full, clear understanding before the event if we don't even have it after the event? It's amazing what they did, anticipating it through faith, and amazing what we do, actually, with 2,000 years past, that we're keeping this memory alive. That's a big achievement. That's what pleases God and pleases the saints. They want that the passion of Christ is never forgotten, that it's the center of our Day, week, year, life with daily mass or Sunday mass or first Saturdays, first Fridays or Easter, Triduum every year or your whole life has been for that, which takes us a few decades to figure out, right? Because we think we've got other priorities Mm -hmm. and eventually we realize "Mm -mm, this was always the thing. Yeah, it's like, guys, this is the apocalypse he's talking about, right? Like, what is the wedding supper of the Lamb? This is what we're talking about. This is eternity. Mm-hmm. And it's like eternity, like, it's not, <laughs> like, when we go to Mass, it's like, lift up your hearts. It, you know, even in the Novus Ordo, they say, it's like, do, you know, do you really? <laughs> or it's like, you know, no, like, you're there now. You're in heaven with the saints around the altar now. And it's not something in, in the future. It's like, God really does raise us up now. Yeah, that we are in, we are with Christ now in the heavenly places. So Scott Hahn's book about the Lamb's Last Supper th- that really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, because he said that the Book of Apocalypse was all about the Mass, and I was thinking, what? You know, I've read that book a few times, never understood much of it, but I never saw the Mass there. And he shows you how it is, I'm like wow. And that's the last book of the Bible, 
and then it slowly occurred to me that the first book of the Bible is also all about the man. Mm -hmm. And this is why the cross is the beginning that informs everything else. Um, and informs individual lives. Yeah, well, you can even see in the Old Testament, right? Like when, when they're going to march on Jericho, what do they have to do? They have to take the Ark of the Covenant, march it around the city seven times. The liturgy is so intricate. Like it's so important, even in the Old Testament. It's almost like you see the liturgy so much more in the Old Testament that, that than you do in the New. But really, the, all the liturgy is in the apocalypse for us in the New. So it's, you know, that's really what it is. So but throughout the entire Old Testament, you're seeing God command the, the Jews to do these strange things, like all these weird things that they have to continuously do because the ritual is so important to really ingrain this inside of us. So it really is such a tragedy that people people miss out on on the aspects of the liturgy that are that are so important. Yeah, I think that's why propaganda works, that we get so much propaganda now from the globalists through the internet or whatever in schools. They're trying to brainwash the children with the whole trans crap. And they know that if you just repeat a message again and again and show the pictures, you will form people because we're wired to be formed by that. But what we're meant to be exposed to is the liturgy, which exposes us to God's nature. And I mean he wires us in a beautiful way for salvation. And if we're empty of that, then you're vulnerable to the propaganda. Yeah, then we had a whole secular liturgy over COVID. Yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Why did they make us wear masks? Because they knew you seeing everybody. Listen, if you never turned the news on and you never saw masks, you would have never known anything was different. Right. Nothing was different except they forced it down your throat by constantly drilling the message down over and over and over. And everybody had these things on the back. This is the secular liturgy that, that Rob's talking about. It's like the thing you do is the thing you believe. And that's why it is so important that we do these rituals that God actually did because God's propaganda works too. And you want that and you want that to shape the way you live your life and shape the way your heart is molded. And there's an instinct in man, perhaps, he understands that the tiniest things you do have an effect on the whole universe. So people think, whether I wear this mask or not, I refused, but they, you think, or people thought, it's like going to be the end of the world if I don't. <laughs> if I don't wear this mask, everyone's going to die. How lunatic is that? But really, the small acts that we do are like the genuflection when you come before the tabernacle in mass. It's mm -hmm. a small act, but it raises the whole universe. It's properly ordered. Yeah. You, you were saying earlier about, about evolution and Rob and I have been fleshing out this idea. I say it, I say it pretty often. So I'm sure the people watching right now are going to go, okay, here he goes again. But the people don't realize how intuitive religion is to the human person. Like God designed us to be religious creatures. They have, they, they have evolution as their creation story. Their apocalypse is climate change. Their holy days are pride month. They have original sin is racism. I mean, religion is everywhere. They think they're not religious, but they have a liturgy. They have everything that we do. Right now, they're marching in New York City over this say, violent, over their martyr man. on the subway. They had a martyr on the subway. This man was a violent man who he punched a 67-year-old woman in the face. He kidnapped a seven-year-old girl, dragged her down. But that is their martyr. He's Saint uh, Neely or whatever he is. And if you really pay attention to what they're doing, they're marching in New York City because that is their liturgy. And it is forming their hearts toward the other way. Yeah. Because the Antichrist wants to raise himself above everything that is called God and put himself in the seat of God in God's temple and be worshipped as God. And that is, he will have a one world religion. 
And this is all preparation for it. Yeah, I really think the new pinch of incense to Caesar is the rainbow stuff. Like, I think that that's going to be, you know, you see it with people that you thought were, you know, you were like, oh, this person, you know, he's one, he's he's on our side. And then it's like one by one, they all fall and they all say, well, you know, this is OK. It's a like, guys, this is the pinch, pinch of incense to Caesar. Like, this is going to yeah. be where they get us. And I think it begins through what one's family and neighbors and work colleagues rather than a theological or philosophical reflection on what's true and false, what's right and wrong. Because what it, it's like the thing about if you see someone suffering and you love your brother and you want to help, that brings you to God. But if when one of your family members or friends starts excusing, defending, promoting or engaging in this lifestyle, people don't want to be cut off from them, don't want to confront them. So they change their own position. They lose their own mind, basically. There must be a way of saying to someone, look, I love you, but I don't accept that. But we, we're still, um, we're still neighbors. You know, we, but if you don't take that stand because you're frightened of being cut off by them and being cut off by society, that's the opposite of loving God, of loving the, the truth in your brother um and that's why i think that's where people start going down because they don't believe this stuff really yeah but they're just they're frightened of being cut off and, and then they communicated yeah and then <laughs> they lose their ability to think and they it's actually the new excommunication it used to be we had christendom where heresy was kept under control now this is the new anti-christendom right it's the anti-church built it built up all around us and they're and they have a new form of excommunication where they will make you persona non grata. You will not be able to. Put, and what's what's really scary is you're seeing the hierarchy flirting with this thing mm -hmm. and, the, and the hierarchy starting to say, well, you know, we're going to let James Martin, you know, he we're going to lift him up and promote him as if there is some way to reconcile that with the Christian story. And there just is not. Right. And the difference is that when the church excommunicated people it was medicinal it was for their repentance and to bring them back in you never close the door to someone entirely it's like look if they will go repent confess if it was a public thing they have to deal with it publicly whatever the scandal but the idea is to bring them back in whereas in the modern system the non-christian system if you've messed up you're out forever there's no rehabilitation it's re it's really ruthless so i both sides do have their code of morality but the difference with Christianity is mercy, basically, which is divine. It's of God. It doesn't come from us, and it doesn't because we're not like that. If five-year-old kids are not like that, they're not mm -hmm. by nature <laughs> merciful. They have to be shown that, right? Um, so the new world order is, is going to be getting. Look, it's, a, it's a twisting of the of the Christian story, and it's a twisting of the instinct to be empathetic, right? Like you said, there's something in us that wants to show compassion, right? It's like there's something in us that want, like God designed us that way. He made our hearts to chase after Him. So when you see somebody suffering, your instinct is to help them. Now it's a false sense of empathy. You see somebody that has this disordered, um, whatever you want to call it, this disordered. Uh, passion or anything so your instinct is to show compassion and say no i still love you so yes you should still love that person but that doesn't mean condoning what they're doing is a good thing like there it's not enough to just have something be accepted they want it held up as the ideal 
And that yeah. is where this is going to go. And if people aren't willing to have uncomfortable conversations right now, because we've gone through so many times, um, even dealing with family members where it's like, oh, don't discuss this and don't discuss, don't talk politics, don't talk religion. It's like, these are the most important conversations in the world to have guys. And because we're afraid to offend people, how do you think this monster came to be? How do you, why do you think this new Babylon is rising? It's because everybody was too afraid to speak their mind at a time when it mattered. Yeah. So like the, the whole thing that Rob and I have been trying to do with this channel is look, obviously these negative situations exist, but we're trying to give people hope through this. Right. So like we want to show people that like, yes, okay. You know, society's falling apart, but like we're in the midst of this universal story and all of this was foretold and you're chosen to live at this time because God has some plan for you to, to be a part of this at, at this time. Yeah. So if I can do another shameless book plug. No, uh, plug away. I want people to buy all of your books. I'm going to finish reading uh, Crucifixion and Creation. I'm going back to buy every book in this series. Right. This this one, um, the second one, Crushing Satan's Head, it shows how Our Lady is prefigured a dozen times, at least in the Old Testament, where you have a woman basically crushing or exploding or cutting off the head of the Antichrist. And it, it's done... Or, often in a participation with the whole community that they have to fast or pray uh, or trust her. And like with Judith, the people had to just hold out until she came back three days later. And she did the whole thing almost single-handed with a bit of help from her maid. So God wants us to have this hope that the Antichrist, however fearful he is, and there were some really nasty figures in the Old Testament prefiguring the Antichrist. Um, <clears throat> the outcome is certain. And it's not, we don't compete with them on their terms by trying to build up an alternative one world force and wealth and influence through the media. Um, it, it's more internal, spiritual. But I'm not saying we, we, we withdraw from the world. That if you develop your spiritual life, you'll be engaged with the world. But it's just at a level that the enemy has contempt for. They don't think it matters. If, if like we're having traditional masses in private homes now because churches aren't available, the enemy think they've won because they've driven us out the cathedrals and the parish churches. Mm -hmm. um, they have no clue how powerful the mass is and how powerful is the meek person who isn't, um, doesn't want to destroy the enemy but once their conversion for, for a human enemy. And um, this is the most powerful thing. It will win. Oh, for yeah. sure. It's like, God, yeah. we have the power of God behind us, guys. It's like, the, the story, we, we know we're going to win, but you're also like, prepare yourselves for some rough times ahead. Like really, like if you guys think it's bad now, I want you to really just understand something. You live in the 21st century. You have air conditioning. You have, you have which, which you life. listed as your favorite invention ever, by the it way. It definitely is. I sweat <laughs> like a crazy person. Listen to me. You live in the most comfortable time in history. So I don't want to hear about how we suffer under this regime. You guys, if, especially if you still have access to the sacraments, you're not suffering yet. You have no idea what is coming down the pike if you think that, oh, my goodness, we're living in such hard times. No, we, there's a lot of evil around us, but we still have it easier than any generation in the history of mankind. Yeah. So that, although Christians being persecuted in Nigeria or Saudi Arabia, I, I, I find it a bit overblown when we talk about 
being persecuted in Europe or North America. <laughs> There's some bad things happening, but it's not quite persecution. We um, still have we still have tax exempt status in in America. Like, don't <laughs> tell me the church is being persecuted. We're not yet. We're going to be. But not yet, guys. And it's like if you're sitting there dwelling on all the bad things all the time without seeing God's hand in it and without having faith that God has everything under control, you're missing the whole point of all this. Mm -hmm. So how many books are you planning on writing in this whole series? It was the original aim was to get the, the fourth book out, which will be out in a couple of months. Um, but I'm always left with a bit of material. Um, and I, there's there's a fifth one I, I really want to write about the whole Eucharist <laughs> in the Psalms of Sunday Vespers. It's just amazing. We need to get Sunday Vespers back in the life of the church. So it's normal that people go to Vespers. And you hear these five Psalms nearly every week. And they come up on the feast days as well, some variations. Um, and the, the whole Eucharist is in them all. It's, it's just amazing. And the beauty of Vespers You'd say about this channel, you want to concentrate on the positive, right? And I completely mm. agree. I've spoken about problems with Francis, and that's just a part of it. But it's like 10% of it. 90% of our, our work has to be, or 100, look, searching for God to know him better. And Vespers presents us with such peace and beauty. It, it changes you like nothing else apart from Holy Mass. Um, so that's... but the. Up to the fourth book, I'm basically coming, going to be coming into conflict with the enemies of the church big time. Yeah. But the fifth book is just, if I ever get around to doing it, I don't know. I'll slow down a lot, I think, after this summer. Um, <clears throat> it's just to put something beautiful and true out there that's a joy for, for the faithful, if we will get revived vespers. Guys, first off, um, I bought uh, Crucifixion of Creation yesterday at, on the Kindle app. It's seven dollars. Like, it's not like this is some seventy-five dollar book. The, the, on the Kindle app, it is seven dollars. If you get if, the paperback, if you have the the Kindle subscription service, it's actually free. Right? Yeah, it's like yeah. I want to get the word out. I'm not trying to make money out of this. I do. I get a bit, so I'm not. I don't need anything. But I, it's such a beautiful book. Like the meditations that I mean, I'm not even. I'm only. I'm only. I read the intro. I read the final chapter, and now I'm into the second. Like I've read the first and second chapter. It's it's a such an easy read, but there's such deep meditations. And like I was saying, like there's things that I mean, I've read the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. I never picked up on when Solomon dedicates the temple, 137,000 lambs are slaughtered. Then after the temple comes down and they rebuild it, they have to rededicate it and hundreds of thousands of lambs are, are slaughtered. Then they defile the temple. And uh, Father Maudsley really does take you through showing how all of these things we're talking about have really been mapped into the design of creation from the beginning of time when we spoke earlier about the body blood soul and the unity of christ being in the tabernacle temple in the incarnation and the mass i forgot i think to say the blood of course the precious blood that runs in christ and in the chalice of the mass that's the blood of all these sacrifices yeah and because why bread and wine right why do you have a solid and a liquid and i think it's something to do with metaphysical division between being and not not being so the bread is like the substance of god that he gives us his life his being and the precious blood washes away sin it takes away not being now when i say it takes away not being like not being doesn't exist 
you think, well, there's nothing to take away. But if you make a logical exclusion of not being and you make a positive affirmation of being, then everything's totally secure forever. And that's what God does with the bread and the wine. He gives us grace with his body and with his blood, he takes away sin so that everything that is opposed to God, that is not of God, is just completely destroyed and has no standing. Um, and that's why we, like God is one and he's simple. But once you have creation, you have a multiplicity. You have God and you have creation. That's two things. And everything in creation has to be multiple. Um, and that's why we need the, the body and the blood to, to give even, even the significance of bread, right? Like the, in, in the Gospel of John, um, I forgot what chapter it's in, but um, the, the Greeks want to come and see Jesus. And, and Archbishop Sheen has this amazing uh, talk he does about the hour in the Gospel of John. Yeah. And it's like when, when this Greek person comes over and wants to see Jesus, Philip and Andrew bring him over and Jesus says, oh, my hour has come. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. it can. It's like the, Jesus had the mass in mind from the moment he starts his, well, really from all eternity. But you see it in no place better than in the Gospel of John, where Jesus keeps talking about the hour. And every time Jesus mentions the hour in the Gospel of John, he's talking about the hour of mass that we are going to spend in worship of him. And a grain of wheat must die before it can be brought back. And it's just such an amazing thing how it's all. Well, when God planted the Garden of Eden, there were trees, there were flowers, and there was grass. And they all tell the story of the passion. The tree, because it converts dirt into fruit, which is the passion changing sinners into saints. The flowers, because you have the stem of the flower, which is like the root from Jesse and then Mary, and then the flower is Jesus, the church fathers tell us. This uh, beauty at the end of the stem, because he had no biological children, right? But the flower sends out its scent that you can detect from a long way away, beautiful scent. So Jesus, although he kept him to the end of a biological line, it, it's then spiritualized his presence everywhere. And the grass, because the grass has a seed which has to fall to the ground and die to bring forth more grass, whatever. And so Genesis 1 tells us again and again about these trees bearing seeds after their kind. And it's all talking about Christ who will die to bring forth life after his kind, Christian life in Christian souls. So I, everything about Eden and the, the rivers, the four rivers, is about grace going out to the four corners of the world from the tree of life. And even, do you know, the, the rabbis say that the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple destroyed in 70 AD and the altar of sacrifice, which was just outside the temple building where you'd have the holocausts. These were the locations of the tree of life and the tree of mm -hmm. knowledge of good and evil. Hmm. Now you can't test that by archeology. span It's only it can be a theological investigation, but the temple Mount has an elevation of about 740 meters Calvary, it, amazingly, on some look on some maps, it's 777 meters high. It's higher, 777, where all the sacraments come from. I think that is the location of the tree of life, where the cross stood. And the holy of holies of the temple could easily be where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were, both of them in Jerusalem. Um, so Eden was laid out with God's knowledge of what was yet to come in those places. That's a big part of crucifixion and creation, actually, about the place that Abel was killed 
in the same place that Abraham offered Isaac, in the same place that Melchizedek offered bread and wine. Because Melchizedek was the king of Salem, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. He did it in Jerusalem. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is where Calvary is. And Abel was killed. Um, it said Cain took him out to the field. That This field is equivalent to the outside Jerusalem when Jesus was taken outside. So it's all basically around Jerusalem. And you find Adam was buried there. Adam was created there. The foundation stone that the rabbis talk about is where creation began, which is where the cross stood. Then Isaac met Rebecca there, and they went into a tent and started making babies. And that's like the beginning <laughs> of life. In fact, they didn't conceive um, with, I think, Esau until some time later. But that's another story. Um some of my favorite artistry is when you see the crucifix with the skull of Adam underneath it. Yeah. You know, yeah. This, this is so, and this is where Solomon's temple was built and the Holy of Holies stood that the Ark of the Covenant came. So there's this place that has been important, a geographical place from the beginning of time to the crucifixion. Then Jesus' blood runs down, touches Adam's skull, redeems him, lifts him from uh, limbo. Mm. Yeah. So, what is God trying to tell us with all these events that happen in this place and that scripture records them like Jacob's dream somehow has to be outside Jerusalem because it tells us it's in Bethel, which was formerly called Luz light, mm-hmm. but it's kind of morally the same area of all the places on the face of the earth that Jacob could have had his dream of this ladder reaching to heaven. And then he anoints the stone. So he's dreaming of the cross and then he anoints the altar which is Christ or the mass, it happened in that same Ombron. So the meaning of all these events, Adam's creation is like the church coming from Jesus' side on the cross. Abel's death being killed by Cain is Jesus being killed by his elder brothers. Um, Then Adam's burial is where he comes back to life thanks to the cross. Um, Abraham offering Isaac, is the father offering the son. Yeah. Isaac encountering Rebecca is like Jesus and Mary becoming a father and mother to us all in the spirit. In the tabernacle, by the way, it said in Jacob's mother's tabernacle, he took his mother's tent with him. Not Jacob, sorry, Isaac. Because um, he was sorrowful when Sarah died. And he kept her tabernacle. And this is like keeping the Old Testament, the tabernacle. But from it comes the, the new life of the new covenant. Do you, do you have a few minutes to do um, questions from the audience? Because there's people asking questions, and I know they'll be so upset with us if we don't. Do you, are you, are you have a time restraint? No. You got, well, go, go ahead with the questions. And when I find one I can't answer, I'll say time restraint. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob, you pull them up. You see who wanted to ask some stuff. So the first one is just wondering if your books will ever be available as audio books. Yeah, my, my plan is, if God willing, to start recording them in July after I've written the fourth one. I'll try and get them out um, summer, autumn. I'll see if it works. You want, you, want know what's, you want to know what's funny? You, you have such a distinct accent and voice that as I'm reading your book, I read it. In, I hear you reading it to me when I, in my head, it's the funniest thing. Like you, because I've been watching your videos so much that as I'm reading your book, like I hear your voice through them and I, and I hear these deep reflections that you're having as I'm reading them. And it's really actually pretty awesome. I hope you do the audio version if you do. Yeah, I will. I will. People have said that about, um, have a, a slightly different way of writing perhaps. Um, 
It's beautiful. Yeah. I love, I cannot recommend Crucifixion or Creation enough. I can't wait to go back and read your previous books. I'm, I'm so mad. I'm so late to the party on these. You're going to have you back on as soon as I do read those because I'm going to, I'm going to, I mean, I, I have, I, could, I can't believe how fast this interview went. At first I was like, oh man, I wonder how this is going to go. I'm like, I could, I could talk to you all day, but once I read your other books, I'm definitely getting you back on. So go ahead, Rob, you can see who's next. So uh Keytube here is asking, what do you think the plan is with, with Francis and the meetings with the SSPX? Do you think there will be some sort of future full Full recognition, full communion. I have no idea, really. I would definitely hope. But I think the church will have to um, make a return to the traditional mass. It will be restored, and the SSPX will be key to all that. And that the church isn't herself until she recognizes what the SSPX did was right, because they risked everything um, to keep tradition going. And this is the whole point, I think, that God wants of us to have this faith of stepping into the dark. Um, and that, you know, St. Paul writes in Romans 9, 3, that he's willing to be anathema for the sake of his brothers. It's mm -hmm. like he's risking his own salvation for the sake of the Jews. And although you can never do anything harmful to your salvation that will help anyone and never do anything good for your salvation that will harm anyone, it's always win-win or lose-lose. So, but St. Paul was just revealing the depths of his willingness to do anything for them. And I think that the church was presented with a new situation in 1988. And Lefebvre loved God so much and the saints and the mass and realized that without it, we're all stuffed. Yeah. So he, he was willing to go out on a limb for this and thank God that he did. <laughs> So I don't know whether Francis or the next Pope or the one after him, I don't know who is going to, I, I could imagine that one after the next one will say, this war against tradition is nuts. The world's falling apart and we're attacking our life. Why are we doing that? And they'll just call off all the dogs and say, any priest can say which he can use a traditional missile. No one can stop him. That's yeah. why he's a priest. And it doesn't, the bishop doesn't need to make that decision. The Rome doesn't need to make that decision. The priest knows full well how he's going to pray best and what the people around him. It's not even asking the people around you what do they want. The priest should say you want the traditional mass. Yeah, you're a father. You're a father, right? You right. don't give your children the choice. You are the father. Yeah. You're the yeah. one that says, no, 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 look, I know exactly. it's best for your soul. I am going to I am going to lead you to heaven. And if a priest isn't leading you to heaven, I don't know where he's leading you guys, but yeah. attention to that. So I have no insight into the politics now with uh, Rome and Francis and the SSPX, but I think only long-term, it's all got to come good. Yeah. But probably by then, the church will be hated by everyone. That's <laughs> 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 <We> anticipated. <clears throat> How important uh, is it for a layperson to pray the little office? Um, it, it, they're wondering if it's a good use of time or something else would be better. I think it, it's excellent, but it's very good. As you said, you did it in Lent. So I would do practices like that either in Advent or Lent as an extra, as a penitential thing, but it's also a beautiful thing. So for lay people shouldn't try and pray the whole divine office, by the way. It's not their job. They have got other things to do, either with children or to do with the world. But they could pray compline every day or attend Vespers every feast day, Sunday and Friday or whatever. Or they might 
prime and compline or whatever, some part of it. And the little office of the Virgin Mary is very um, user-friendly in terms of the rubrics. It's going to be a whole lot more simple than trying to follow the calendar, which, which you need time in seminary, seven years, I think, to get all that to fall into place. It's not mm. simple. Um, but to take on an extra practice for certain times of the year or Sundays, you could say, I'm going to do these. And the office, yes, the church needs to recover the divine office. Um, first for the priests and the communities, but then for people who can attend feast day and Sunday vespers, and, and perhaps compline. In the meantime, little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary is wonderful. But don't do you, lose. Do you, any, do you have any speaking engagements planned? I don't, um, because I'm. I'm really trying to concentrate on writing at the moment. It, maybe I'll come to the States later this year. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that's something like that comes up. I want to come. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so mad. I didn't go to the Catholic identity conference this year. I really, I, I just had something going on, but it was great. It's yeah. awesome people. Yeah. Do you think the declaration of the assumption as dogma, uh, did that start the last battle? Yeah, because I could see in a way that a fifth Marian dogma about her being co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces, if that, that's like game over then for Satan. You know, the church has achieved so much that it's amazing that 1900 years after the, the assumption happened, all the bishops of the world pretty much are petitioning Rome to promulgate this dogma. I mean, it was believed all throughout but the, the church wants to declare it because when you're full of good news, you can't keep it to yourself, right? You want to sing about it. This is what the church wants to do. And that was awesome. And was that 1954 or 1950? Um, and things start falling apart after that. In, in fact, there was a feast of either the Queenship of Mary or the Pure Heart of Mary um, in, at end of May or the week after the Assumption. No, that was the one, the week after the Assumption, I think of the pure heart of Mary, which to do with the promulgation of the dogma is fixed in place. And then there's not much more for the world to say or to exist for. I think the fifth Marian dogma would be awesome to recognize she's COVID entrance. Mm. Um, and, but that's why God allowed things to fall apart from 1951, 55 with the change to the Holy Week. Because the church had already achieved this awesome thing that heaven is just like rejoicing over that. And it's like, we'll pick up the pieces of what happens down here in a couple of generations. <laughs> um, and we'll re rebuild from, from there. So what I mean is when you score a try in a rugby match, there's a little bit of a breather for people to walk back to their half of the pitch and um, stand up again and get, take a few breaths before it all kicks off again. Yeah. Um, so the devil has had his... Um, Paddy, what do you say? His tantrum yeah. <laughs> against the liturgy and everything else. But the, the church is gathering herself back together. I see that. I see that like clearly. It's it's funny. It's like everybody thinks everything's falling apart, and I see God forming. Look, I, I, even like um, a lot of people say, "Well, trads are this, trads are that." It's like these are the young people coming into the church. Of course, they want to make themselves known. Right. They want to they want to make sure like they announce their presence so that so they they're a little rough around the edges. These they're young guys. They haven't been formed in the faith yet. They're going to make noise. They're going to be a little. They're upset that it was all 
taken from them. Like when I yep. first found tradition, I was there was a lot of anger there at, at what was taken from me. And I, I was raised Catholic in a parish that had the Latin Mass, and I was still told that it was no different than the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. So to to find out you were more or less maybe unintentionally robbed of your but right. but still lied to and robbed it, yeah. it 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 can make you angry. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I see it. I I, I really do see like, you know, I, especially like first off they're going by what's happening online. It's like yeah, those interactions online are terrible. You know Queen Isabella of Spain, she was in some battle and she had um nobles from all over Catholic Europe come to help. And there was some English noble there with his horses and his forces. And he had his teeth knocked out by a cannonball. And he was a bit of a mess. But he comes up grinning to meet the queen <laughs> and offer his homage to her. She didn't care that his teeth were missing like, and say, oh, go away. And that his uniform is cut or probably didn't have a uniform then. but Or bleeding or dirty. So I think with the young trads, if they're a bit feisty... Um, like we're at war. Mm-hmm. You don't like on parade. You might expect everyone to be immaculately turned up, st- turned out, standing up straight, and everything. But once the battle is raging, you don't go picking on your own side because they got yeah. mud on their knees. And these are tiny little faults in comparison with the diabolical aim coming from even yes bishops to destroy the church. Like you know with Supech ordering on Christmas Day the announcement to reduce the Latin masses in Chicago. On Christmas Day, mm-hmm. he put that out. What is he thinking? <laughs> Just whatever the subject, nobody in the world would drop a hammer on Christmas Day unless they are completely perverted, unless they enjoy sadistically causing distress. What, what, is, what Cardinal Supic, if you watch this, what were you thinking? Why don't you take that back? It's disgusting, and you embarrass yourself. You show yourself to be evil, wicked, cruel, a destroyer. And yet he's one of the most popular men in Rome, if you judge by the number of flights he takes over there, with with Francis. What's going on? You see, see, even in every document that comes out, it's always released on a Marian feast day. It's almost like they're trying to stick it to us a little bit because we're the ones that actually pay attention to these things. So like you said, we're at war right now. And, and especially because the younger guys, they haven't look, especially think about when you first converted, like you're just so excited to to, to talk about things. You haven't had like a, a serious prayer life yet. You haven't had time to reflect on things like God will mold these men. And, and they are the future of the church. Let them make their presence known, you know, be patient with them. They will come into, uh, you know, a more, a more mature faith as time goes on. There's another critique of the younger generation coming to tradition that some of them seem a bit optimistic. They think, oh, if we just present the good side of everything, people will come to it. Now, I think that's healthy for young people and it's an error. It's healthy because when you're young, you have, God willing, this good disposition to others and you think, oh, if only they know the truth, they'll come to it. And that we want young people to think like that because it's reflecting their own good nature because they're interested in the truth. You will learn over the next 20 years of your life, no, there's people who don't want the truth. They yeah. they pick the dark side. And it, it's it's like hard, really hard to face it. So in the end, like the father, yeah, if he's protecting his family, he doesn't much care about the intentions of someone that threatens his family, he's just going to see the threat off. Doesn't have to make a judgment about their soul, whether yeah. they 
nice or not. He's just not going to let the threat come to his family. So, um, anyway, do you have other questions? Yeah, we're going to make this the last one because my daughters are about to get up and start making noise in here. So we'll make this the last question. And then I would love to plan another one of these uh, sometime in the future. Father, this is such a fun interview, man. I love talking to you. That next book sounds interesting, but we might have to do that one uh, off of YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What what do you think about the, the consecration of the, of the new Immaculata in Kansas? I don't, are we talking about the church? The, yes, the church, yeah. Consecration yeah. just happened. I've seen um, that there's some videos about it. Unfortunately, I've not seen them myself. So I'd, I don't have much to say. Okay. I, th- I think yeah. it's a good, good, hopeful sign. I mean, that a traditional society was able to build something uh, like that. I'll be done in two seconds. All right, <laughs> the girls are getting up and they gotta start getting ready. So I had no time. Up. Yeah. So listen, Father Mosley, we're gonna plan another one of these. This was so much fun, man. I could talk to you for hours on end. You are such an uh, uh, such a uh, an insightful writer, guys. Please go out and buy this book. Not not because Father Mosley wants to make a couple bucks, because I'm telling you, you will get so much from this book. I've only read three chapters of it and it literally lit my heart on fire the, i cannot recommend it enough the last the last chapter on on kind of the hope that the the mass gives is worth it by itself honestly yeah well i love the hope that comes to your channel that i i, I hope that, that people are picking up on on some of the things that we're trying to get across it really yeah and we've so much to draw from through all the history of the church and the old testament and you're putting it out there, so it's going to catch fire. Father, you have an open invite to come on with us, so if, if something comes up that you do want to discuss, like, please just reach out to us. If you ever want to, I mean, literally, anytime you ever want to do something, please call me. We will have you on anytime. I hope that you become one of, one of our good friends of the channel that comes on frequently because the, the church is lacking, like, good priest that actually will teach catechesis so much. It is such a treasure to have somebody like you to actually well, have a conversation with. Thanks for the openness. And that, it sounds good to me. I just, um, I, I can't even generally plan very far ahead because God really does that. <laughs> he has his own, his own we're plan. So, we're, so, we're so spontaneous. That's what I mean. If something comes up that you ha- and you have an idea, it's like, hey, Anthony, you want, you want know, yeah. maybe we could do this. Just let me know. We'll plan it right off the bat. It All doesn't right. have to be planned months in ahead or anything like that. Right. Is there anything you wanted to touch on before we before we wrapped up that you wanted to plug? Oh, your your channel, your uh, oh, yeah. uh, scripture and tradition. Yep. Um, YouTube, scripture and tradition, Father JM. I hope there's some good stuff there. People are interested. The, there uh, is a link, a link to it in the description as well as a link to... Uh, to purchase uh, crucifixion to creation as well. So, yeah, guys, please go check out all Father Mosley's videos. Um, this is, uh, it, I'm telling you, I've been literally at work just binging his videos, and my boss finds out I'm in trouble. Work. <laughs> at work, <laughs> yeah, at work. Right. Well, God bless Father, you, thank you and, your, and your channel. I'll see you again. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you so Father. much for coming on with us. Can't wait to see you again. Okay, right, take us out, Rob. Mm-hmm.